and welcome to Pyres and Twirling Unwired, a daily discussion about business, technology, and current events around the world. Featuring Tim Pyres, a career software, privacy, and mobile communication pro, and Ben Sperling, a leading professional in digital health and healthcare technology. This program is casual and non-rehearsed, and may feature occasional guests or recorded interviews. Let's join Jim and Ben now. Hello and welcome to Unwired, episode 22, for Tuesday, May 26th, 2020. You've entered day 76 of the lockdown. I'm Jim Pyers from FEMA Region 9, from a nondescript, theoretically well-hidden bunker in the Hidden Jewel compound in Escondido. Uh, ben is somewhere on Funk and Wagnall's porch in downtown Point Loma, or possibly in an undisclosed location. Uh, soon this podcast may just be the Wired Podcast. That's my nickname after all. What? Oh, wait a second. I've got an urgent Skype call from Point Loma. Collect, of course. I, hey, I think it's it's Ben. Good evening, Jim Fires. <laughs> Ben's in town from Point Loma. That's right. Love it. Uh, and, and yes, it is collect. <laughs> He's collecting. So today's part two of the podcast podcast. So I'm going to continue the tradition from last week's show. So it's a whole week old tradition. I want to continue sharing some uh, favorite sound bites and highlights, but we're going to go a little different direction this time. Uh, last week's show was was more, I would call it, politically oriented podcasts, uh, maybe tech type podcasts. Today we're going to be talking very philosophically about life and business. Uh, as always, shout out to 77 Bombay Street for the music. So let's start the show today. Um, ben, I'm going to highlight a few podcasts, and these individuals have been very influential in my business career and my personal life. And so I wanted to share these with you and with the uh, with the audience. Um, last week, we, we mentioned, you know, the No Agenda show, we mentioned Joe Rogan and Dave Rubin and Amazing Polly and Jordan Peterson. So those were the some of the folks that we highlighted. And uh, by the way, I did want to mention, um, this is why Ben and I are in this game too. Uh, congrats to Joe Rogan, who just put his Joe Rogan Experience podcast on Spotify exclusively for 100 million bones. Uh, I've got a clip, Ben, if you want to listen to it just quick. So let's listen to Joe announce he's going to Spotify. Hello, everybody. I have an announcement. The podcast is moving to Spotify. I signed a multi-year licensing agreement with Spotify that will start on September 1st. Starting on September 1st, the entire JRE library will be available on Spotify as well as all the other platforms. Then somewhere around the end of the year, it will become exclusive to Spotify, including the video version of the podcast. It will be the exact same show. I am not going to be an employee of Spotify we're going to be working with the same crew doing the exact same show. The only difference will be it will now be available on the largest audio platform in the world. Nothing else will change. It will be free. It will be free to you. You just have to go to Spotify to get it. We're very excited to begin this new chapter of the JRE, and I hope you're there when we cross over. Thanks. Wow. So, 
Yeah, Wow is right. Congrats to, congrats to Joe. That's a, that's a pretty pretty big payday you just got. Uh, I would say so for a podcast. So he's only a podcaster, a lowly podcaster. Doesn't get much lower than that. And he's a very rich podcaster. And what's interesting is the impact. So think of YouTube. Because YouTube's getting the knife in the back. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think the reason is Joe saw what happened to several people getting deplatformed off YouTube and having their business essentially shut down. Uh, one of them was Alex Jones from InfoWars. Uh, but there's been a couple of others who basically just been taken down. And um, I really think that Joe was worried about that. Um, and I think, I think that's why he's made this move. And I think this is one nail in the coffin of YouTube. Um, I think YouTube's going to end up being, if they keep this up with their uh, censorship and deplatforming uh, people, I think they're going to end up with basically cat videos. And um, I don't think they're going to get a whole lot of ad revenue from cat videos, to be honest. Well, I could be, I could be wrong there, but uh, cat, because I like cat videos. But um, anyhow, what, what do you think of that, Ben? 100 million bones for a podcast. No, I think it's great for, for Joe. I think it's great for people that are creating content, right? Yep. Uh, and providing value. So, you know, you know, this is kind of reminiscent to me when Howard Stern signed that, I think it was 50 million when Stern did it at, uh, at Sirius XM, right? Great point. Yeah, very, yes. very so similar. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of one of those move, a new, you know, moving to a platform, uh, consolidating, you know, all the library of history of, of content. Joe's got plenty of it, right? Um, now, I'm not sure if I, you know, dialed in the same way you are with, about the you know, the censorship that's happening at, at at YouTube. I mean, I think it it is happening. I think it's happening in all the platforms. Um, and I think you know, there's going to be big players that are, you know, big content developers that are going to not play ball. But, you know, YouTube's going to be around. Um, YouTube, uh, there's so many aspects that Google has gotten into that surfaces content through YouTube. So, example, like Google Classrooms, uh, which they've made pretty big hay in, especially during quarantine. Um and, you know, bringing, you know, video content and displaying it through YouTube. So, you know, so I, I think there, yeah, there are going to be some folks like Joe that leave, but I think that Google is, you know, the lights are still going to be on at YouTube. I think you're watching slow motion suicide. I think Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, the further they go down the rat hole of censoring the content, because you said it well, Ben. The content creators are who makes those platforms. YouTube doesn't make any content. Facebook doesn't make any content. Twitter doesn't make any content. The content comes from the users. If Donald Trump leaves Twitter, it's over. It's good night. If and and I really feel that you know someone like Rogan starting this, um, you know, I would call it exodus. Um, 
they're they're going to deplatform the the platforms. That's what's happening, and I think yeah, uh, but I, I think I think it's going to be slow motion suicide for these guys like the New York Times. Well, think about I mean Taylor Swift that she didn't want her content being played on Spotify, right? And I think she did a deal with Apple Music to start off with. Right. Yep. Um, and I think Jay Z was part of that, where they're like, "No, we're you know we're not going to do Spotify. They're not paying. You know, maybe they didn't believe that they're paying the artists enough. I don't know. Um, but I, I think you know Taylor Swift's music is now available on Spotify. You know, it's available now um, because my my teenage daughter, you know, has downloaded a few songs onto our Spotify <laughs> account. So I can I know. imagine. So, but I guess what I'm saying is, it's like. It's good. They may use YouTube as an avenue, but they may, you know, they're going to try to direct their who's going to give them the best deal. And that and that's free enterprise. So, you know, God bless Joe and, and any other content creator that can get enough demand um, and, you know, charge a premium for their product. You know, I, for their I, I just love it. He's sticking it to the man. Uh, hey, hey, wait a minute. You're the man. What was that commercial? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah, I think Joe, you know, to Joe, maybe it's a bonus. I don't know. Right. No, I think he was afraid of being deplatformed. And I think now he's he's got a deal. He doesn't have he, he's not going to be kicked off, you know. So interesting. Anyway, I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, clip. The, the, the I mean, whether it's a person on Twitter, um, you know, saying something disgusting that, you know, you and I would find vile, like, you know, I'm Jewish, you know, the free, free, you know, First Amendment gives, you know, a member of the Ku Klux Klan the ability to say the most vile things about Jews and blacks and anything else that they find offensive. And they could stand up in public square and screen those things. And they can get a permit. Um, and it sucks, uh, to be quite frank, but that is part of the society we're in is that they have the right to do that. Right. And I think these platforms, whether it's, you know, Twitter or Facebook or whoever that, you know, you may not like it. Um, and it may be offensive to others and it may be inaccurate, right. The information too. But so is the same thing that somebody can get a permit and spout in town, you know, in, in the center of town on, on, you know, on a soapbox, right, that's false, you know, ugly, despicable, what, you know, any decent human being would say, but it's allowed. Well, and, and so you, if it's going to be allowed there and you're going to have a platform, why isn't it allowed there? Now, they can disclaim it. Uh, you know, so they don't take getting liability for it. Um, but it, you know, it's a slippery slope what they're doing. No, you just described the definition of free speech. Yeah. By definition, free speech means it's the stuff you don't want to hear. Uh, it's the stuff that is vile, that is contemptible, that that you may vehemently disagree with. That's the whole point of free speech. You don't need free speech for the things we all agree on. So it's Obviously, what's protected is essentially what uh, we would some people would deem as hate speech. That's what is protected. Unfortunately, well, it, that's the yeah. that's, that's the 
the legal definition, um, you know, and, and as soon as as soon as you start to become the censor. So like you said, in, in the town hall, uh, yeah, people can yell and you can have your you know, you can have your signs. You, you can you can publicly oppose somebody who's up there spewing nonsense. Um, and, and the same thing applies on these virtual town squares. So, but the, the problem is you are also the content and the content and the content creators, you know, it's, it's not like YouTube is creating content and now you're inserting your hateful information into YouTube. No, your hateful information and everybody's content is the content for these um, for these platforms. And that's where they're going to get into trouble. Well, I'm going to spin this a little bit different way. So if Facebook or Twitter, uh, well, a lot of them have gone public, but if they hadn't gone public, they were a private company, right? Doesn't a private company get the ability to say, set the rules on their own platform? It's a private business. Of course you can. That's not the point, though. The point no, is the, the point is they'll drive people elsewhere. I already see Trump is talking about s s going to Gab, right? Or but, yeah. that, but my point is, is that it's not illegal what they're doing. Your point, your right, point. Right. They have the right. You can say, look, right. no shoot, no, no shoes, no shirt. No service. No service. You right? can you can say that, but guess what? The guy's going to go next door, where he can well, get service. That's, well, that's my that's and my that point, is though. my point. Yeah, my point is is that um, if it's if if the content creator knows the rules, you know, are terrible over there, you know that that they could be delisted or deplatformed, as you put it. Um, then yeah, I that, mean, go somewhere else. Right. That's what's going to happen, right? So right. yeah, that's like, all I'm saying. Like, yeah, I mean, look, it, it it happens in all media. Like you know, I mean, whether you're uh, a Republican or Democrat, you know which news outlets cover Republican or Democratic slants of, of of media. You do, right? And so, if you you know want to hear the things you want to hear, you tune into that channel or you read that newspaper, right? Um, and that's factual world for you. Right. And then the, you know, folks that are kind of independent in, in between, they're kind of the ones that are really hosed because they're trying to figure out, you know, what pieces to believe from both sides. Um, but look, Facebook, Twitter, they can, they can do, they can, they can censor. Um, do I agree with them censoring? No. Uh, because I'd like it to be as, you know, as fair as what I have to put up with in, you know, in town square. Well, they have the right to censor and it will be the death of them. Uh, that, that's, that's all my only point. Yeah. They can <laughs> censor all they want. Good luck. I, I guarantee they're, they're going to, they're going to kill themselves with that approach. And it's, it, it's actually, they're going to end up getting sued as well because there is, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's. Maybe it's not ex because they're a private business. Maybe it's not exactly like the public square, but but they are positioning themselves. Um, I'll give you a good example where they can get sued. So Twitter today 
basically did kind of a, a fact check on Trump. So Trump's, you know, complaining about the the uh, sending out voting ballots, you know, in the mail. He, yep. he believes this is problematic. We were just chatting before the show. Your brother was actually doing some sleuthing, some uh, some detective yeah. work on this. Yeah. And and yeah. and so. But what Twitter did is. And they've already been debunked, but but Twitter came back and said, based on data from CNN and some other pretty lame source, Trump's they marked Trump's tweet as uh, I, I don't, I, I'm trying to think of how they categorize it, but like n- non-factual. So, you know, I'll play my jingle. Fact check false. So they basically fact checked his tweet on this, which. He was just harping and complaining about it, saying it's it's going to be problematic for the elections. Um, so I'm not quite sure how you fact check his opinion because it's it was effectively an opinion. Um, so hold on, hold on. Let me back up. So you're yeah. saying Twitter was doing a fact check and they marked it fact check false. Correct. On Trump's okay. tweet, right? Okay. And this is like the equivalent of like. Was the four Pinocchios that you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it the Post, the Washington Post? Is that who does it? It's on. Which one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's kind That's of it's kind of that uh, I'd say an equivalency. You know, you somebody's fact checking you and then <laughs> saying. But I love, but I love those because it's it's self serving to whatever audience that wants to believe, you know, believe or disbelieve Trump or whoever, right? Yeah. And I always love the fact check. So it was almost like a political commercial where it says, you know, <laughs> Jim Pyers running for Senate voted against children getting, you know, food, you know, guaranteeing <laughs> they're getting food or insurance. But essentially you voted against a bill that was stock full of things to hatred and like, you know, were pet projects and wasting taxpayers money. But yet there was something in there about children and making sure they eat. But you voted no in the whole bill. But, you know, at, from an accuracy perspective, when they throw that mud at you, that when you're running for Senate, that you voted against children, guess what? They're right. It's a fact. And when you say it's wrong, your fact check false. <laughs> so, like, fact check it's false. a vantage point, right? Yeah, I, I can, like, I love, and, and it's especially the, the, the data that we see these days, you know, larger related to Corona, but it's like, you know, it's their spin on the data because the data they're giving you is actually accurate. But what they're not telling you is, oh, well, we added this data in it also like, you know, antibodies tests and, you know, uh, regular COVID tests are matched together. Right. So numbers are off, but they don't give you the whole picture. Right. And that's largely what the media does with any facts. So I would say that most of the time, the facts are correct, literally, but they're not giving you the whole picture, right? Well, and I do want to make it clear, I did vote for children to eat, so just... All right, well, <laughs> I, didn't know you were, I didn't know you were a senator, but yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. it was in another yeah. life, perhaps. But No, but that, that, that whole thing, that always bothered me when I see political ads and they're like... You know, and then they have the, and they have a little number down at the bottom, like this is the bill that he voted against, right? Well, and this is back to my point, though. So here's where they they could be on shaky ground at Twitter. 
So now Trump is claiming after they they censored his tweet effectively, he's he's claiming they're interfering in the election. Uh oh, um, you know now does that have a legal uh, basis? Is is that actually going to be something that Trump follows through on? I don't know, but what? But he definitely made the threat, and I can definitely see instances where. That's legit. And if they're putting if they're putting their finger on a scale of a political event or a political um, position, like somebody running for president, perhaps, um, I'd call that some pretty choppy waters. And what about advertising, though? I mean, what you know, when Facebook let certain advertising go for Trump or for, you know, you know, Hillary last time. Right. Like, so so, so are you go? saying are you saying that's um, th there's a legality there or um, they could they, I mean it would it would so here's the thing here's my opinion if if you're Facebook and you, you're getting calls from third parties and they want to advertise and give you money to spin up their advertisements I mean that's their business that's exactly what they do for business. So right. unless they're t unless they're telling Trump, no, he can't advertise on the platform. If they're just taking if anyone calls up and they're willing to pay the prices to get their stuff on Facebook, um, I don't have a problem with that. I only have a problem if they're tilting the scale. If, so let's say they say, you know what, every 10 calls we get for Trump, we're only going to take one of those ads. But we're going to take all of the ads for Hillary. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now that yeah, might that that might even be illegal, right? Because they're, yeah. But but, but their business is taking ad money from people that want to run ads on the Facebook platform. That's what they do. Sure. That's their whole business. Do they, have a, do they have a responsibility to say the source of it? Yes, I think so. And, and so a responsibility to say if if someone asks where the source of that far, ad was. Right, but how far... They usually do in how, political ads, though, don't they? You, right, typically. but, you know, how far do they have to dig? Like, so they, let's say it was... Let's say they wanted to go as far as it's Russian, you know, meddling, right? So... So why... So, so it's a global platform, though. Why can't Russia buy ads on Facebook? But if they have a... Well, no, I'm, I'm not saying they can't or, or can. Or China or... But or, there should be real transparency, right? So instead of having, like... You know, America the Proud, you know, foundation, and it's Russia behind it, right? <laughs> that, that you know that it's that's every NGO that ever existed has right, that kind exactly, of exactly. Yeah, I guess that's my point. Is I mean, I think what Americans want is I don't, I don't think they care that such and such is spending money, but they just want to know that you know it's transparency. I agree, like, and and, and that anybody, is... any, any money that Russia spent through any shell companies or any like. For whomever, whatever political candidate, people just want to, people just want to know. Hundred percent right? agree, and you're you're bringing up another interesting point, which is native ads, right? So, when you when you run an ad, if it's clear that it's an ad, number one, and number two, yep. if it's clear who's behind the ad, then I really don't have a problem with it, right? So, like right. to your point, if if China's running an ad on Facebook, and and I know it's ch coming from China, I mean, I don't really care, um, but the, the advertising, these native ads that are slipped into content and movies and 
games and things, you don't know it's an ad. So that's number one. And then obviously, if you don't even know it's an ad, you don't know where it's coming from. Yeah, so, but that's, you know, part movies, movies and TV shows have been doing product placement. Forget the political piece of it for now. No, but what, that's but they could do that with politics, too. Right. You but in theory. Oh, oh, yeah. The subtle, the subtle, the, you know, how subtle they are or not subtle in many occasions with, you know, a, you know, the banter of a script in which they, you know, may chastise a certain political party versus the other. Right. Um, but, you know, you can choose, you know. If you know such and such is you know a certain actor is in there and they have a have a leaning towards a specific political party, you could choose not to go see that, right? You could choose not to spend your money or your time on that, right? Yeah, because if you like like if you see a Robert De Niro movie, you know he's pro Trump and you know he's going to be all the way behind whatever Trump does. So if you <laughs> if, if, if you don't like that, I mean I, maybe, I, I, maybe I, you don't want to see that movie, you know. De Niro, when De Niro listens to this podcast, he's coming after you, right? <laughs> oh, he's a big Trumpster. Never been, never been a Trump fan. Um, and let me give you Jim's home address. Um, <laughs> where the jewel is. Oh, that old man um, can come here anytime, man. He'll get his ass whooped. <laughs> I can promise you that. Uh, uh, he'll pull some one flew over the cuckoo's nest on you. Um, you know I'm crazier. Yeah, uh, so, I, I, you know, but yeah, I mean, for me, I know there's certain actors that are very politically active. And to me, I find it a turnoff. Not that they don't have the right. They have the right to use their fame and platform for whatever they want to. But for me, as an individual, I don't like it. I don't like it if it's, you know, you know, agreeing with views I agree with or not. I'm just like, I'm listening to you because I, I want you to act, right? Um, and, and entertain me, right? Uh, don't entertain me with your political... I, I can go somewhere else for that. I see that on every news channel, but that's just me. No, I I, I, I hear you. You're right. Well, let and, me and that let's. With, I, that, and that goes with baseball players, professional athletes. I mean, I was watching the Last Dance with Jordan, and they were they were giving him flack for not helping um, an African American uh, politician that was running in his state, right? Um, yep. And, you know, I get why people were upset with him. I really do. Um, but I also like that he just stayed out of it. Like, nope, not touching it. And I, I wish more actors and celebrities and, you know, athletes would stay out of it. Yeah, because it does sometimes change, especially if they come at it from the wrong way that you you – it affects the way you think about them or their product or their sport or whatever. So, Well, think about it. an actor and an actress. They kind of get a stereotype by roles they take, right? And so, like, if they're always the bad person, like, every time you see them, you're like, there's no way that person's going to be good in this movie. You know, like, they're not going to be the good person, right? Yeah, always evil. the bad guy, yeah. Right, so they have a stereotype. It's like, it's like when you see somebody with Star Wars and you've watched, you know, Luke Skywalker, you know, Mark Hamill go, you know, do, you know, a bunch of Star Wars movies. And then all of a sudden he does like the lights went out in Georgia was one of his movies. And you're like, where did that come from? Right. <laughs> just, where's the light? Where's like, the lightsaber? And where's the lightsaber in this movie? Right. It's the same thing. Like as people have these political views, like it's tough to see the content and the craft that they're doing anymore because of 
this new association, which, you know, adds noise to what they're trying to do. Uh, definitely. Well, let's let's get to the A block because <laughs> that was just the intro to the show, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a while since we got back together, so yeah, that was all, that was our best intro so far. It's, so. it's all pent up. So let's go to A block. Um, I've just got a couple of clips there for you. You, you didn't send any your clips today, so th th but I picked one for you that I thought was kind of funny. But the first one, you're you're gonna. The first one's to amaze you, and the second one is just to make you smile. But the, the, li, li, listen to the first one. Uh, this is amazing, Polly. I introduced her last on the last show, and this is in, so. I'm I, I'm intentionally staying away from COVID for this topic, no, for this show, but because uh, I'm sick of it. But but this one I had to play because it's unbelievably amazing and interesting. So. Two countries in Africa, Tanzania, Madagascar. The okay. leader, the leaders effectively come out, and 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 they pull the fast one on the WHO, the World Health Organization. So listen to Amazon Polly, uh, amazing Polly. Sorry, Amazon Polly. It is in Africa, um, and let's give her a, a quick listen. All right. It's okay, a, so a little bit long, but pretty shocking stuff, wouldn't you say? Uh, a papaya tested positive, and uh, what was it? A goat and other things. I have cut about half of that speech out, but I will link to it in the description box so you can hear the whole thing. It is worth listening to him because he's got other things to say in there, including calling out the WHO, calling out the World Health Organization a little bit for their failures to do anything about this. And he mentions that something is really wrong. He asks, are his people in the lab being bought off? Perhaps, is there something wrong with the supplies, the reagents, the swabs that he is importing into his country to, take, uh, to do the tests with? He's saying he doesn't trust any of it. And so that, to me, is very interesting. President now, the of reaction out there in the world, of course, is not to say, wow, Tanzania found some really big problems with these tests that raise a lot of questions. No, what they did was, of course, a smear job on Magafuli. First, because he is a Christian and he talks about God quite a bit, as he did in that speech. That was another thing I loved. Magafuli told his people not to worry, not to be afraid that they could beat it, that they were smart, that they have potential cure, which they're going to be getting from uh, Tanzania. But they also have herbal remedies in their own country that are being effective. He told them to come together and, and not to be defeatist. He said people that are getting diagnosed as positive might die of worry when really the tests don't even work. So I really like this man. I think he's very strong. I think he's very sensible. And it bothers me all the time to see good people like this be smeared in the paper. But that's basically what The Guardian does instead of addressing the flawed tests. They go after the man. They criticize him in a roundabout way um, for his religion. We all know that Christians in the West, uh, the, the left half of the political spectrum is just triggered as soon as you mention anything to do with Christianity. So they go after his religion. They compare him to Trump, not not just once, three times in one article. 
And they say that he's just modeling his response off of other populist leaders. Well, that has nothing to do with anything. Were the tests flawed or not? Guardian. The Guardian journalists, as usual, don't care at all. I think I'll leave that part there. Who cares? So you've got the idea. So basically, I'll, I'll summarize because the Tanzanian uh, interview, you, you hear him making his speech um, and it's 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 all in Tanzanian. So you you wouldn't understand P- possibly a form of French. Um, I do speak French, couldn't quite understand um, everything. So I, I'm not exactly sure what language he's speaking but the the sense of that the translation was that they were not trusting the results they were getting back from their testing labs so they sent them uh, and and he he describes each one but they sent the blood of a rabbit of a goat of a papaya I think she referenced the fruit of um, several animals and then several humans but the, all the results came back COVID positive. And so this really caused an uproar in his country. And then Madagascar, who she's referencing there um, at the end, is they supposedly came up with a, a very potent tea. In, you know, you're familiar with Madagascar, Ben, from your kid, kids' movies. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so it's a beautiful place with, uh, you know, wild jungles and and, uh, and and so supposedly there's a tea that they've come up with that has um, very positive effects on patients with the flu and and or COVID and and of course they were chastised by the WHO for for even bringing this up right kind of at, that they're frauds and you know as she was saying they were and both of these were you know these were the prime minister and the president, basically, of, of their respective countries. So who were getting, um, you know, thrown under the bus by by the World Health Organization. So, so anyway, like I, Jim, I, yeah. Yeah, Jim, I don't have the, the background on on these guys and, and, and the content of that speech. But I will say that it seems like, you know, anytime you disagree with something and you and you and you kind of smear it or whatever. But and. I don't know about their tea. Maybe it is the magic tea. I mean, people didn't believe in Eastern uh, in Eastern medicine too. You know, Chinese medicine, right? Acupuncture, and sure. Acupuncture, et cetera, right? I mean, acupuncture is so well accepted. My insurance, you know, will pay for so many visits a year. I mean, and yeah, I 20, 20 years ago, that was impossible. Yeah, right. Yeah, I can assure you that my payer does not want to pay for things that. Are, are not working that isn't science right yeah so the link the link to that to the, to those interviews they will be in the show notes so you can watch the whole thing it's fairly lengthy but she does a good job of breaking it down and um basically letting those guys talk so you can hear it from their mouths and then and then coming up with your own conclusions but i just thought it was interesting that um no matter what they sent in, it was positive. <laughs> and the guy, the guy was not happy about that. Um, well, and basically he, he said in his language, so either you're paying off the people in the lab or these tests are just flawed, you know, and there's only one result we're getting back. So 
you know, probably it's always the, you know, Occam's razor, simplest answer, but, but that's, that's where that came from. So moving on to the, the one that'll make you smile. So I, I don't watch the news very often, but uh, every now and then I'll watch Tucker Carlson on, because he's so, um, he's so sarcastic. And so here's a good example of Tucker's sarcasm, uh, which I enjoyed. Thank you. We're joined tonight by Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, a state that's been hit pretty hard. Seems to be doing a little better. Senator, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Now, I don't know if you plan um, to go to Long Island this summer, but you should know that doubles tennis is banned. It's illegal, but singles is allowed. In New York, swimmers will be yanked out of the water. In Los Angeles, wet sand is fine. Dry sand is dangerous. I know you're not an epidemiologist, but assess the science there, if you would. <laughs> okay. So, slightly different um, messages from the East Coast to the West Coast. Of course, Tucker's being very sarcastic there. Um, so, Ben, assess the science. <laughs> I, no, I can't. I'm not touching that one. <laughs> assess the science, Ben. In Point Loma, are you allowed to walk on the wet sand or the dry sand? I get the bonus plan. I get to walk on both. No way. I just, I, I, but I am not allowed to sit down on it, by the way. No, no sitting. Okay, no sitting on the sand, so no moving. Yeah. And th does that apply to both sands, the, the wet sand and the dry sand? I wonder. You know, I haven't tried to sit on the wet sand. You might want to test that one out. It seems I'll like just, there's some uh, discretion yeah. allowed on the wet sand. And, and are you a tennis player? So... Did you catch that? You're allowed to play singles, but not doubles. And also, you, you I'm sure you saw the, the meme where the, the gal said, uh, you know, you, you have to bring your own balls and you can't touch anyone else's balls, but you, you can kick them, <laughs> kick, kick them in the balls. Uh, that was allowed. Oh, man. So th these are our real government officials, um, you know, coming up with these things. Uh, I'm 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 impressed with their creativity. Uh, it's it's innovative, right? So, anyhow, I thought that was kind of fun. No clip of the day today. What do you think? No clip of the day. Nope. Let's go to the B block. All right, we're already in the B block. All right, so here's my big intros today. Today we're going to introduce um, probably to many listeners a guy you've never heard of, and then maybe someone you've heard of. So Naval Ravikant is a very successful entrepreneur. He's so well known in geekdom that he just goes by one name. So he's kind of like Pele in soccer or Kobe or Michael. Or he's, uh, he goes by Naval. And he, he's known for a tweet storm, uh, you know, infamously, on how to get rich. And it's really just clickbait because... It's way more than that. It's, it's more about a philosophy of how to be successful. But the tweet storm was called How to Get Rich, and, and that's actually the name of his podcast. And he does a really interesting thing with the podcast. His podcasts are incredibly short, like two or three minutes. Some are five minutes or something, yeah, but, but real short. But then he glues them all together. So you can go to YouTube and you can listen to the Naval podcast and I've, the link will be in the show notes. And it's a link of all those two or three minute um, 
Wisdom. Uh oh, what's that? The the, the hidden jewel is about to self destruct. <laughs> that sounded like, a, <laughs> yeah, man. Did, did I set the grenade ready to go off, or what happened here? Uh, that's right. Something happened. I'm still alive. All right. FBI is at my door. I don't know. So anyway, um, he's got a podcast. He's his background is he's co-founder of Angel List. That's one of his uh, you know, largest inventions. You were familiar with some of his other work, uh, E Opinions, and uh, yep. so that was also Naval. And he's uh, in addition to being co-founder of Angel List, he's a prolific investor. So he's invested in early stage investor in Uber, Foursquare, Twitter, Yammer, Clearview, a bunch of stuff. He's, he's born in India and attended public school in New York, and then ultimately he graduated from uh, Dartmouth. So kind of from the school of hard knocks and just through his sheer brilliance was able to, uh, you know, kind of rise above. And to me, he's one of the He's one of the premier thinkers, uh, philosophers of our time. He's he's pretty young, actually, and he appears on Rogan and Jason, who I'm going to mention. And, and he, he he's um, he's written a few books. I think one's called Venture Hacks. Uh, I could read that book; it's pretty interesting. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna play some clips from Naval today. So we're dropping some wisdom. Uh, that's the point. And then Jason Calacanis is the second guy. And, and Jason is probably one of the most influential people in terms of my business education. Um, he's been around a long time. And Jason's an amazing guy. He's also kind of school of hard knocks from the East Coast. You know, um, he's, he's probably most famous um, for a deal that he did when he was an EIA at Sequoia Capital. And through this program, he invested like 25K, one of the first investors in Uber, with 25,000 bucks. The deal is now worth like 100 million. So that's a pretty good ROI. He, he's also a big investor in Calm. But in the early days, he, um, he was famous for Weblogs, Inc. And that was ultimately acquired by, uh, who's the guy's... Uh, You've got mail, guys. Um, now, now. AOL. Yes. God, they're so ancient. I can't even think of the name. So Steve, Steve Case. Yeah, Steve Case. So AOL is acquired Weblogs Inc. and Jason did a little time there, and then he moved on. But uh, that's kind of how he got started. And he was a, a journalist and a writer, and he he, did, he was pretty well known in blogs and things. And and then he started this week in startups and. I saw him on a few programs um, that I used to watch back in the day. You know, this is 15 years ago. And I started to really like what he had to say. And he's had just the most amazing guests, like Naval. So I actually have a, some clips of Naval and Jason from Twist, This Week in Startups, uh, from 2012. Uh, that's how, you know, so this goes back a while. But, but I've got some more recent things. Um, and I'm going to cloak this whole discussion in authenticity because it's interesting. Both Jason and Naval, and I'm going to play a clip from Mike Rowe just because he brings up this authenticity subject. That's what they think 
people want from their media. I mean, if you're watching the news, if you're watching, you're listening to a podcast, what what those two say is is the key is being authentic. And I'm gonna play a few. I'm gonna play a few clips on that topic uh, from these guys today, and I, I think you'll really enjoy it. So let's let's start with uh, let's start with Naval on authenticity, and then we'll go on from there. So sometimes you just get trapped in the wrong game because you're competing. And the best way to escape competition, to get away from the specter of competition, which is not just stressful and nerve-wracking, but will often drive you to just the wrong answer, the way to escape competition is to just be authentic to yourself. If you are fundamentally building and marketing something that is just an extension of who you are, no one can compete with you on that. Who's going to compete with Joe Rogan or Scott Adams? It's impossible. Is somebody else going to come along? and write a better Dilbert? No. Is someone going to compete with Bill Watterson and create a better Calvin and Hobbes? No. They're being authentic. This is easiest to see in art. Artists are, by definition, all naturally authentic. But even entrepreneurs are authentic. Who's going to be Elon Musk? Who's going to be Jack Dorsey? These people are authentic, and the businesses and products they create are authentic to their desires and their means. If somebody else came along and started launching rockets, I don't think it would phase Elon one bit. He's still going to get to Mars because that's his mission. You know, insane as it seems, that's the one he set for himself, and he's going to accomplish it. So authenticity naturally gets you away from competition. What's your take, Ben? Um, you know, it's interesting. When you're authentic, obviously you're passionate about it and you're mission-driven. You're locked in, right? Um, but that doesn't mean you're not going to have competition. Um, you are going to have competition. And sometimes you will beat them handily because of your commitment and single focus. But um, I'm not sure if I 100% agree with that, that you, you have no competition because I think you still do, right? Yeah, the Dilbert example, no, you're not going to have Somebody's not going to write a better Dilbert, right? But they could write another, a better comic strip, right? That garners so much more attention. I mean, if you just think about it, think about Facebook and what was the, what was the? MySpace. MySpace, exactly. I mean, I mean, better execution, but I mean, MySpace was there first, right? So MySpace was being authentic, right? But Facebook came along and improved upon the idea, right? And was very user focused, right? So there's better mousetraps to be built, right? Yeah, so I, th I, I think the subtlety was he wasn't saying there's no competition. I think he was saying it, you can separate yourself from the competition. And I, I think he did address your concern, which remember at the end, he talks about Elon and he says, yeah, Somebody else might come along and build space rockets because he brings that up. He goes, I, I don't think that's going to affect Elon one way or the other because he's authentic. All he's saying is his authenticity to his mission will, yep. will keep him on his track no matter no matter whether there's 10 competitors or no competitor. It, it's, it's not even a competitive thing because he's not doing it to compete. He's doing it because that's what he is. I think that's yeah, what he's but I, more I, saying. I, I get it, but you know, let's take the Mars example. 
if somebody gets to Mars before him, right, you know, is, is he still, you know, still going to be locked in for Mars, right? Yeah, he may have to shift to Jupiter or... Well, no, but his Saturn. goal, I mean, but, I mean, that's the whole thing. I, he wasn't originally thinking about it as a competition, but if somebody beats him to his goal, per se, right, and it's a singular goal... So, Ben, goal I know exactly where you're going with this. Jeff Bezos is going to beat him. <laughs> I know where you're going, dude. I could see it, see it a mile away. I wasn't, I wasn't even thinking, but uh, I'm just saying anybody, right? I mean, look, the idea behind it is great. Stay singularly focused. I mean, it's kind of, it treads on the concept of blue ocean strategy, this idea in business where you're, you're, you know, the red ocean is your competition. It's, it's retreading the same idea. Um, and blue ocean is you're kind of making a new market, right? It's, it's different. It's going from Ringling Brothers, a barn and Bailey circus, right? Uh, to Circus Soleil, right? They're both kind of under the big top, right? And they both may use animals, but it's like night and day difference, the type of show you're going to, right? Yep. One is like a theater, like going to a fine theater, in the caliber of, 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 uh, of artistry that happens, right? And so they change the game, you know, of how you think about, you know, under the big top, right? Nothing wrong with Ringling Brothers. It was entertaining. I went as a kid, but I've also gone to Circus Soleil and paid quadruple the price, right? And it was a, it was an incredible show too. Definitely. Okay, so, well, let's so let's let's take another take on the same topic by a totally different guy. So let's listen to Mike Rowe on the Rubin Report. Now, Mike is the Dirty Jobs guy. It, yep. it always cracks me up when you listen to him because. You know, you know him as the dirty jobs guy, the guy who's down underneath the sink, you know, fixing the plumbing or underneath the house, you know, do, cleaning out the cesspool or whatever. He's done all these crazy things. Right. But if right. you listen to him, he sounds like a uh, he sounds like a Yale graduate, you know. So it's you know, he's, he's his vocabulary and the way that he speaks. It's kind of interesting. It, it always surprises me a little bit. Um because he doesn't talk like the dirty jobs guy is my point. But anyhow, and how does the dirty jobs guy talk? Probably more like me. But let's let's see. Um, let's listen to Mike Rowe on on Dave Rubin's uh, Rubin report on authentic, authenticity, and then let's see how that matches up to Naval. It's not too long. Um, yeah. But look, Weird. I had the I had a similar conversation with him about the. Um, the unintended consequences of production. Production is the enemy of authenticity, in my view. And I've that's why the production values on shows like Dirty Jobs, Returning the Favor, all the stuff I work mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. I I always, always, always push back against the desire to make them perfect. Because what the viewer I think really wants today is something Shoot, did we lose that? Um, yeah, yeah. But look, Weird. I had the I had a similar conversation with him Sorry, about we had a glitch. the, um, the Sorry unintended about consequences of production. It'll, production we'll, is the enemy we'll of authenticity, in my view, and I've that's why the production values on shows like 
dirty jobs, returning the favor, all the stuff I work mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. I, I always, always, always push back against the desire to make them perfect. Because what the viewer, I think, really wants today is something authentic. Now, there was a time before we were in the age of authenticity, I guess it was the age of authority. And that's when all the newscasters talked like this. And that's when everybody, you know, well, they didn't get that memo. Nobody cares anymore. People have stopped caring about that stuff for years. You know, they don't care that the anchor is wearing makeup. They don't care that it's shot in HD. They don't care that there's a teleprompter that, by the way, the anchor's trying very hard to pretend they're not reading from. I mean, could, <laughs> could there be a greater artifice? Like, we want you to trust us because we have information you need, but what prompter? No, I'm not reading from a prompter. This is all coming up. The whole... There's also no one talking in my ear as I'm telling you the stuff that I'm just thinking of at the moment, even though I'm talking like a robot. <laughs> well, no, I, I look, being authentic, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's yeah. Mike does a, a good job driving at home. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting because we do create, we do crave authenticity. Um, when reality shows first started, we were under the perception <laughs> that we were seeing the something authentic, right? Behind the scenes, this is the kind of unedited, right? And as you know, and maybe at the beginning when they first came out, they were a little bit more raw, right? And now we know it is a production and, you know, how they, you know, edit it, whatever, they get you to see a certain way. But I think we do crave uh, celebrities are, I mean, I'm, I, I am going through the, the, the last uh, dance with, uh, it was mainly about the Bulls run in, in the 90s and Michael Jordan. And hearing these interviews, I'm getting a, a, a big behind the scenes. It's, you know, authentic from, you know, largely from Michael Jordan's view. Um, it's really fascinating because I lived through that and didn't realize all the things that go on. And I think that's why people try to, why people like documentaries, right, on specific topics that may be interesting to them is because they're like, wow, I didn't know that. It's authentic, like what happened. Great point. Uh, Great point. And, and it is, um, I've been watching, uh, I was in Sedona for a week or so, and, and my buddy that I was there visiting, he, we actually interviewed him on the show, show number seven, Dave Feidel. Dave played in the NBA in that era, and he played against those Bulls, and he was in the league uh, those six or seven years during the, uh, the Bulls run. And so it was fun to watch it with him um, because I lived overseas when that was all going on. So I, I missed I missed a lot of that, even the stuff that all the public was aware of. So, I, you know, I didn't have any of that inside stuff. I didn't even have the outside stuff. So it was real interesting to watch with him. And and my wife, who's not a big basketball fan, enjoyed the last dance because they have so much about the personalities and the you know, the struggles and, um, you know, the politics and, you know, the, the good luck and the bad luck and, and the things that happen in the, the lives of the players, you know, losing, losing a father or, you know, all the same stuff happens to those guys that happens to us. 
but usually you don't hear anything about it. So, so I thought that I think you're right that that really is fun to get an inside look at kind of what what was going on when when those guys were on that amazing um, athletic run. You know. Well, well, I think it's kind of fascinating because they break it down. I mean, if you can look at that. You can watch The Last Dance and you can see it just from a basketball perspective. You can also see all the interpersonal relationships that Michael had with his players that came and went. Um, and, you know, he wrote them like Seabiscuit, right? I mean, he was very singular focused about winning championships. Uh, you know, seeming like everybody was partying, he was focused, right? Um I, I, you know, I found that kind of how he dealt with other folks and how those, those people perceived him, like, you know, kind of asked the question, is he a nice guy, right? Well, he's a philanthropist and, um, you know, he's, he's, you know, on in McDonald's commercials. I mean, how do you not like this guy? He's got that, you know, million dollar smile too, right? I mean, he's got a lot of charisma. Uh, but his teammates, some of them that love him dearly, but also like, is he a nice guy? And they, they, they hesitate, you know, is he a nice guy? Right. Cause he, he wrote him pretty hard. Right. And he probably pushed them to be more than they probably would have been. I think Mike was pathologically competitive. I think that's what even he would say it probably not like that, but his, his competitiveness, I'll tell you every player who was good at some level and then you know becomes a coach or changes careers or whatever they all have the same problem which is and jordan had this as a player he expected everyone to not just to play at his level that that's not wasn't the point he expected them to give the same effort that he was giving yeah and and, and i think that's what I think a lot of people kind of miss. They're like, yeah, Michael was a dick and, you know, he was riding those guys like a donkey and and he was. But I don't it, it but I didn't get the sense it was about playing because if you look at the the Paxson and the Kerr and the Cartwright and the and the Pippen and the, you know, the those team those team guys that were critical to the to the success they performed. So what where Michael was pushing them, I think, and you know, you can debate this, but I think he was pushing them in preparing, preparation, and in effort. And I think in a lot of ways, I respected that. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't disagree with it as, as I was a player and a coach. I had trouble, the most trouble with players who didn't give the same effort that I did. You know, not not the same result. It wasn't about the result because everyone has different talents, right? Not No matter how hard you work or I work, we weren't going to be Michael Jordan. But we can work as hard as him and we can actually be, you know, we can be good players, right? Because if, if we work hard. And I think that's, that's where he is a little bit misunderstood. But yeah. Well, it was an interesting time, but I mean, I think it, I mean, he was authentic, right? I mean, that's really kind of what we're we're trying to drive at to, in the today's topic is, you know, that's what I want to be, right? I want to be authentic with my interactions with with people, whether it's you know business or friends, right? Um, 
And I think, unfortunately, in business, um, you can tell when someone is being not authentic, right? You're being sold or... Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, and... You know, those are the scenarios where I'm I'm uncomfortable when people are, you know, you know, ahead of their skis, right? On on what they're sharing, right? Big time, uh, big time. Yeah, and you know, those are situations where I feel uncomfortable in business, where I'm like, ah, you know, I can't I can't go that far. On, you know, there's no way, right? Um, you know, because I want to be authentic. It's a, you know, my name is you know on everything I. Um, I represent, I sell or I market. And if I'm, you know, shading the truth, that's, that's only going to come back and bite me and, you know, down the road. No, I like the, I like that. And I like the way they, they, they talked about authentic, authenticity, but in several different aspects. And I think it was a little bit like the Jordan thing. They're, they're talking about authenticity in your effort and in your um, in in your drive, you know. Well, in, don't be, you don't lie to yourself about yeah. what you. I mean, it, it's like, I, and I think people get caught up on that. They they give you the answer that you think you may want to hear, right? Like, be authentic to yourself. Be true to yourself. Understand yourself. Um, that's not. It's not always as easy as it sounds like, but no. Um, by understanding your own motivations and what you are good at, right? There are things that we're innately good at. And I kind of use the analogy of it's almost like breathing, right? It, it comes that natural to you, right? And knowing that skill and applying that, right? And if you can be authentic to that, um, you can find a lot of happiness. Agreed. And... And the interesting thing about it is, you know, happiness and understanding yourself doesn't mean you're going to be the richest person, right? You're not going to be Gordon Gecko, you know, water skiing behind your yacht. Um, but there's, there's a different type of happiness in fulfilling what you're meant to do. I like that. It kind of, so there's a really good Naval. I was just looking for it right now. There's, there's a really good Naval quote on happiness, and I, and we're gonna, I'm gonna publish on the show notes today, a bunch of his really interesting quotes. Uh, happiness is one of them, and I just, I've got such a long list, I can't seem to find it, but it does take me into another thing that he talks about, which is. So what you were just saying, Ben, is that, um, and this is kind of where he starts to go into the happiness. He says, humans are multivariant. So these are Naval quotes. And every human is capable of every experience and every thought. And, and so that's another Naval quote. And then what he, I'm, I'm paraphrasing in this one. He's saying, you know, he liked the, the Greeks and the Romans model. Because this is this is the arc of life. This is the arc. This is the happiness part of it. Okay. You know, when when you're young, you learn and you go to school. Then you go to war. Then you start a business. 
then you join the Senate, then you become a philosopher. That's the arc of life. And so every human is actually capable of that entire arc. So he's so he says, you have one life to live. This is a quote, do everything you want to do. And um, another quote, try your hand at everything. Specialization is for insects. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. Uh, um, I mean, I agree with many of that. I, I, but I do believe in, I mean, I, you should try your hand. In, in many things. And honestly, part of trying your hand in many different things is really to find out what you're really good at. And ultimately, Jim, though, that is to find your specialization. It's to find what I call is like just breathing, what you're good at. And that's really a specialization. So um, because that specialization, that is that there are certain things, Jim, that you are better than anybody else. And if you recognize that and that's something you're interested in, um, you'll be authentic and you'll be wildly successful. I like um, that. But I would say that is a specialization. So that's where I kind of depart from um, with Naval on, on his comment. Well, and, and that could, so that brings up a kind of another angle. I, so do you consider yourself a capitalist or a socialist? Because I, I and <laughs> And now, um, before you answer, so I just want you to think about it. Then I'm going to play a clip yeah. from Naval on capitalism and socialism, because I, I think it's really interesting how he structures his answer. So check this out. So it's about a minute. I, I think really socialism comes from the heart, right? You all, we all want to be socialist. Capitalism comes from the head. Because they're always cheaters in any system, yes. And there's incentives in any system. So when you're young, if you're if if you're not a socialist, you have no heart. When you're older, if you're not a capitalist, you have no head, right? right. You haven't thought it through. So I understand where it comes from. I always like Nassim Taleb's framing on this, where he said, "With my family, I'm a communist. Mm. With my close friends, I'm a socialist. Uh, you know, at my state level politics, I'm a Democrat. At you know higher levels, I'm a I'm a Republican, and at the federal level, I'm a Libertarian." Mm. Right. So basically, the larger the group of people you have massed together who have different interests, the less trust there is, the more cheating there is, the better the incentives have to be aligned, the better the system has to work, the more you go towards capitalism. The smaller the group you're in, you're in a kibbutz, you're in your commune, you're in your house, you're in your tribe, by all means be a socialist with my aunts, with my brother, with my cousins, with my uncles, with my mom, with yes. my family. I'm a socialist. That's the right way to live a loving, happy integrated life. Yes. But when you're dealing with strangers, I mean, you want to be a real socialist, great. Open all your doors and windows tomorrow. Please, yeah. everybody, come take what you want. <laughs> See how that works out. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so what, I thought that was really uh, interesting. So what do you think? I think that's probably the best quote you've played in any of our, uh, any of our podcasts. That was, that was really good. Um, very insightful. All right. Hold on. Hold on. All right, you got it. You think you're gonna top that last one? Clip of the day. You got it. Clip of the day. <laughs> there that it is. is. That's yeah, yeah, clip of the series. I mean, that's a really good one. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's an interesting way of, of of thinking about it, and a very practical way of thinking about it. Um, because um, we we want to, by human nature, be as loving and giving and sharing as possible. 
but ultimately there's got to be money to pay for it right yeah uh, um, and somehow that money's got to be derived uh, so it that's 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 a real tough one I think I think that's the mental quandary and I and I, I like the idea and I think about it too is that you call it kind of a life arc um, but there are different times in your life where you where you want different things, like in you know career may be the most important thing for you at first, and then you have your first child, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I get a lot of satisfaction, you know, teaching my child, right? Uh, not that I'm still not focused on my career. But it's just different, right? And then the child gets to be a teenager, and they don't want to hang out with you anyways anymore. So you're like, well, I'm going to go back. You know, I'm going to, you know, change where I derive my pleasures from because I'm not getting as much pleasure here because I'm not spending as much time or whatnot, right? So it, I, I see things if people when they're newly married, you know, a child, right? Uh, a life event of some sort, but I mean, that's not saying everybody's that way. I mean, cause some people can stay singularly focused their entire life on a goal. Right. Yep. Uh, but I think in general, most people do evolve. They arc and they go through, you know, different times of their life where different things are important to them. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I thought you'd like that one. And yep. now you have a really good answer if someone tries to pin you down on are you a socialist or a capitalist? I thought that was a great answer. It's also a really, it, it, it goes back to Naval's point about humans are multivariant. So the, the idea that you, that everything you think could be a democratic or a Republican idea, that's not real. That's not, that's unrealistic. You, you, your brain, my brain, everybody's brain, we, we all have thoughts and um, positions that cross all those lines. So why do you have to get in one boat, right? And, and I thought that's a really good answer for not getting pinned in, you know, or hemmed in into a single position or a single boat. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense. This well, is I what, think in politics, well, yeah. I think in politics, they want you to only have two boats you can choose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And which is yeah. which is interesting because, you know, this is probably a broad generalization, but I don't think most people fit into one, you know, fit one hundred percent in yeah. those boats. Agree, agree, one hundred percent. I mean, that that is we're multivariant creatures. That's the whole point. Right. Yeah. So. You know, it stinks, right? Uh, I mean, I was in one party, political party, you know, a good chunk of my life, you know, but for the last 10, 15 years, I'm like, no party. I'm like, you know, uh, that like that Richard Pryor movie, you know, vote for none of the above, right? Uh, it's, where it uh, gets, it's where we're at. What was that? Yeah, what was that? Uh, the Durham Bowl? What was that movie? Uh, Brewster's Millions. Yes. So n none of the above. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating comment. Uh, very eye-opening that we are multivariant folks, you know, people. So now let's, I'm going to play another one for you, which I think is 
it's also impressive in other ways. It's kind of, it, it's, it's motivated by this arc to life concept and, and, and it's, it's, Naval is very good at getting at truths. Like I think in that capitalism, socialization, uh, social, uh, socialism comparison, he's good at getting to the essence of those topics, right? I mean, he, he breaks it down and puts it in the terms of, of people that you can understand. So listen to this one on well, science. That are involved in technology in the first place. And I think when you look at universities in particular, they tend to lean left in this country as well. Well, universities, uh, what happened with universities is very interesting. Universities first, when you know, became the arbiters of uh, data and intellectualism and what's right and wrong. So there's a time period when it was like, should we be doing that or not? Well, let's look at the university. What do they have to say? What are the smartest people, the professors, the think tanks have to say? And the universities got this, this credibility from the hard sciences. So they got this from... Uh, you know, physics and math and computer science and chemistry, because these deliver real things, the Manhattan Project, the microprocessor, the space vehicles and so on, the electric car. So they gain this mantle of authority and legitimacy from the hard sciences. So then come the social sciences kind of sneak in, then you get economy, ec economics, and microeconomics is a real discipline, real science, real math behind it, logic, reason, and then you get macroeconomics, which can be politicized a little bit more voodoo, and then you get social studies, and then you get gender studies, and then you get blah, 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 mm. blah, 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 blah. And so what happened is that <clears throat> because we took scientists to be the high priests of our new world, science itself has gotten corrupted. And the social sciences, and you can tell they're fake sciences because they're the word science tacked on at the end, have come in and hijacked the universities and become the new think tanks. And so essentially what you see going on today in the universities is a war between the social sciences and the physical sciences. And the crossover point is biology, right? Where you can see like the whole gender is a social construct movement is attacking biology and evolutionary biology. Um, just like in the social sphere, they're coming after the comedians, right? But you can see the struggle going on in the universities. And I would say the physical sciences are essentially losing that war. What can be done? Or is it just something that has to play out? Is it, do we have to realize the consequences of the foolishness? Well, and the good news is the physical sciences have a reality on their side. <laughs> right? Yeah, but it's not even, I mean, in many ways, it's not respected. Yeah, but you, at the end of the day, your, your aircraft still has to fly. Uh, you know, your microprocessor still has to compute. Mm -hmm. So there's only so far they can, they can take it. Uh, but I do see, for example, in biology, a lot of biologists are facing this difficult thing where they have to say things that they know are not true to keep their job. Like what? Well, you had Brett Weinstein on here, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So that's a, that's a clear example. Yeah. So it, there's just the, the crossover line of what is acceptable and what's not is entering into biology, and biology will probably suffer the most. Um, synthetic biology, for example, uh, will you know a lot of this will end up in China um, because it won't be you you won't be able to map facts and reality uh, and actions together. You won't be able to get grants. You won't be able to get the adulation of your peers. Um, I don't I don't know enough here, so now I'm in shaky territory. Mm -hmm. But it's just my sense that that crossover battleground right now is in evolutionary biology. Economics lost. Well, interesting. Yeah, interesting stuff. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so no, I, I, I like he just said, you won't be able to map facts <laughs> with science. You just won't be allowed to. 
And I would I would agree. You know, I tend to agree that that's what happens in these universities now. It's gotten the social sciences that have have taken the place of the physical sciences. And this is a big this is a big um, mistake um, that may may be very hard to undo unless, you know, unless people just stop going to school, which if, if, if the cost of school keeps going up and the quality of the education keeps headed in that direction, as Naval's predicting uh, or suggesting, um, yeah, maybe maybe people start to, uh, you know, self-educate. Well, I mean, I, I think that I believe that there's going to be a trend of micro degrees, right? And so, and I think people are going to have to do more micro degrees, uh, specialized degrees, uh, almost like, you know, Votech in some ways, a different level of Votech where it's very specific, you're learning. So like in, uh, in Europe, they have, uh, what are those called? Um you know, you go to school and you work at the same time in a in a vocation. That's yeah. It's, uh, it's like, I forget what they call the what they call it in Switzerland. It's called the the lere. Um, yeah, um, it's like almost apprenticeship. I mean, you're gonna, it is. You're gonna, that's the word apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I mean, I think you're going to see more of that, especially if you think about, I mean, the one thing that we're seeing now because of the shift with, you know, economics because of the pandemic of COVID-19 is that. Don't call it a pandemic, though, Ben. All right. All right. So, it's, so there's people that are, are going to lose everything, right, because of this. They have to start it's, over. It, yeah. Right. Um and they're going to be out of it. They're going to they're going to be not trained for the next job, essentially. And they're talking about as being floated a national wage, you know. You know, basically, you're breathing and you get this amount of money from the government. Right, right. right. What's that called? Uh, so universal, universal UIE or something, universal income. Yeah. But, and I, I was thinking about this, and we had a conversation, podcast number one, I believe, and we talked about transportation and automation and the effects of automation about driverless cars. Yep. And I was thinking, what are, and transportation is obviously the number one employment uh, role in the US. So, what are people going to do, right? what is going to be the replacement job and you know covid now employers are going to go you know can i do with less employees right can i use automation more and more right yep and okay that displaces the workforce even further so what are our what is the the next generation going to do and how is our universities going to equip them for those roles you know, so I'm I'm gonna bring it back to Naval. He he has a great he had a great take on artificial intelligence and the impact of you know because from artificial intelligence 
this is to your point, Ben, every, you know, everything's going to be automated and therefore you're not going to need any factory workers. And therefore, you know, you don't, all of a sudden there's all these people that don't have jobs and the robots are going to drive the cars and do all the work. So, so his theory, and I'm going to be totally paraphrasing this, and I wish I had these clips, but I don't want to try to dig them up while we're doing the show. But to paraphrase, he basically said, think of artificial intelligence. Is he, he said, we're 50 years away from even being able to simulate a cell, a single cell accurately. So what AI is really going to do is it's just going to do all the dumb jobs that nobody wants to do anyway. And the thing that AI will never be able to do, not in our lifetimes, is, is creativity. And what, what's going to happen is the mundane jobs are going to be taken care of by the robots and will allow almost all the work to be creative work, which is what humans really want to do. This is Naval's theory. And, and you know, the creativity, the innovation, those are all the things that, you know, think of an entrepreneur. When you started one of, you know, you've started a, a, you know, a couple of businesses. When you started the business, the entrepreneur is idealistic. Like if, like I was a software engineer, when I started my software engineering company, I wanted to build stuff. I wanted to write code. But that's not what you find out when you're running a business is you don't have time to do that, right? Because you have to worry about selling. You have to worry about accounting sure. and your taxes and, and, pre and managing the people that are working for you. And pretty soon you're not writing any code. Right. And, and so the idea that Naval has is that um, because, because AI is, is, is never going to get to this you know, sort of dream where it's, you know, like the human brain, uh, it's not going to ever be creative. You can never, you're not going to ever teach it to, you know, make a painting or, uh, you know, or, or write poetry or, you know, or, you know, or Shakespeare or whatever. It's just that, that getting to that point, we're, you know, decades, if not, you know, millennium away. No, I mean, I, I get yeah. it. I mean, I, so that was his take. I could, I, I could see his take, but let's just play his out just a little bit and don't want to run too long on this. But if he just takes away the mundane jobs, right? That's a lot of jobs. And those that workforce needs to be retrained and retooled. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So... That was another thing when they talked about, um, so this idea of universal income came up, you know, since it's basically where I'm going to give you Naval's take on it. Um, his take was it, the, universal income would bankrupt the country. But what, what would be interesting, and you just said it, is be, because of the rate of change, in society today. You, if you go back 100 years ago, society didn't change that fast. You know, if, if you grew up as a kid, you know, you didn't have electricity or running water. And 30 years later, you still did. Right. It was right. things right. hadn't changed. But let's say in the last 100 years, last 50 years, 
the rate of change of how fast things are going has increased to the point where maybe instead of uni universal income, you get universal education. And so every decade or whatever the number is, the work the, you get retooled and retrained for the way things are. And that, that made sense to me. And, and, you know, that would still require large investments, but there would be a return on those investments and there would be, um, it would, it would, it would fundamentally give society what we need. We all need to work on something and be valuable. Uh, this is very important to, to the human psyche. And just giving people money, um, it's basically so, slavery, so, right? So let me so let me play this back to you a little bit. Um, so we get to the, we do need to get to C block, but if we um, if we give people retooling education, yep, right? Are we are we get, are we doing it for free? No, this comes back to your apprenticeship idea. I think the way, you know, Jason and Naval were positioning it was they were, you know, thinking you would, um, you know, it would be part of a work education program. Yeah. So you'd be, you know, actually doing things, earning some money, um, you know, possibly paying for some education. Yeah. And, and well, yeah, I, yeah, I think, you know, uh, yeah. you know, Apprenticeship and in in kind of new things, I think, would be very. I, I do believe that we are going to get into micro degrees. Yeah. Right. You're not going to. It's you know. You're not going to fool with the whole biology side when all you're going to be doing is something on the science side or something, right? Or English. You know, you're going to be a, an author or you know a writer or an editor. You're you know. Why are you going to take biology 101, right? In college, I mean, why take the filler classes, right? It, it rounds you out, certainly, but uh, that's also keeping you in school longer, right? Uh, and the higher education, you know, larger debt. So, yeah, so th there's a good clip I just found it, Naval on UBI, it's called. He says it's a non solution to a non problem. I thought it was pretty interesting. Anyway, I'll I'll put that I'll put that link in the show notes too. Excellent. Well, let's see. Let me see what I got to close out because um, we're 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 a little bit over time today. Absolutely. But it was so much fun. I lost track. So that's a good sign. Let me see here. I'm just gonna let me copy this clip from the wall. This is UBI. Yeah, good stuff from Naval. I have to uh, read a little bit more about him. Uh, certainly. Some so, so Ben, you'll good like pers good perspective. You'll like this one. This is about judgment. I, I, I particularly like this one. We spoke about specific knowledge. We talked about accountability. We talked about we'll wrap leverage. The last skill that Naval talks about in his tweet storm is judgment, where he says that leverage is a force multiplier for your judgment. We are now living in an age of nearly infinite leverage, and all the great fortunes are created through leverage. So your first job is to go and obtain leverage, and you can obtain leverage through permission 
by taking risks and getting people to work for you or by raising capital, or you can get leverage permissionlessly by learning how to code or becoming a good communicator in podcasting, broadcasting, creating videos, writing, etc. So that's how you get leverage. But once you have leverage, what do you do with it? Well, the first part of your career is spent hustling to get leverage. Once you have the leverage, then you want to slow down a bit because your judgment really matters. It's like you've gone from steering your sailboat around to now you're steering an ocean liner or a tanker. You have a lot more at risk, but you have a lot more to gain as well. You're carrying a much higher payload. So in an yeah. age of infinite leverage, judgment becomes the most important skill. Warren Buffett is so wealthy now because of his judgment. Even if you were to take away all of Warren's money, tomorrow investors would come out of the woodwork and hand him $100 billion because they know his judgment is so good and they would give him a big chunk of that $100 billion to invest. So ultimately, everything else that you do is actually setting you up to apply your judgment. One of the big things that people rail on is CEO pay. And for sure, there's crony capitalism that goes on where these CEOs control their boards and the boards give them too much money. But there are certain CEOs who definitely earn their keep because their judgment is better. If you're steering a big ship, if you're steering Google or Apple, and your judgment is 10 or 20% better than the next person's, society will literally pay you hundreds of millions of dollars more because you're steering a $100 billion ship. If you're on course 10 or 20% of the time more often than the other person, the compounding results on that hundreds of billions of dollars you're managing will be so large that your CEO pay will be dwarfed in comparison. So demonstrated judgment, credibility around the judgment is so critical. Warren Buffett wins here because he has massive credibility. He's been highly accountable. He's been right over and over in the public domain. He's built a reputation for very high integrity so you can trust him. So a person like that, people will throw infinite leverage behind him because of his judgment. Nobody asks him how hard he works. Nobody asks him when he wakes up or when he goes to sleep. They're like, Warren, just do your thing. So especially demonstrated judgments with high accountability, clear track record is critical. It's It's, It's life experience applied with sound judgment. So what, you know, Warren, Warren Buffett had good judgment early on, but, and, and he built credibility, but that was experience, right? And people saw that experience. We accumulate experience, good and bad. Our failures are just as important as our successes. So that's part of our next judgment call, right? I did have a VC one time say, uh, I need you to, you know, I don't invest in entrepreneurs until they've failed once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because well, what have you done? I mean, or, or if you just did one and you hit a home run, I mean, yeah, you don't know. Exactly. You don't know what it's like to eat it. Well, I thought you would like that one. Yeah, there, there's, yeah. there's, there's some story about Warren Buffett, too, where he... His first job, he actually offered, he wanted to work, you know, in one of these finance companies and he, uh, he offered to work for free and the guy turned him down. And it's a, it's, it's a funny story. I was trying to find it. But uh, anyway, last clip and then we'll wrap it up. This one's funny. This is about who you can't criticize, Ben. So just remember this. This is very short. There's a famous old saying that uh, if you want to see who rules over you, see who you're not allowed to criticize. Mm. Oh, no, that was it. That's how, that's, that's how, that's short, how short it was. It was. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, shoot. Because it was funny. It was just a one-liner. Who you cannot criticize. That was Naval. All right, man. Um, 
I think we should wrap up. You've probably got to get to bed. You you haven't stayed up this late in probably a couple of years. <laughs> You're in trouble. Absolutely. All right, my friend. Great show tonight. And uh, looking forward to the next. We're going to hopefully have some more interviews coming down the pipe. Yeah. Can I, I guess I can say that I we almost had um, John McAfee. We were close. We were in negotiation and uh, we couldn't afford him, basically. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> some. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll bag it out with us. All right, Ben. Well, it's great, uh, great show. Thanks to everybody who's listening and uh, support us at WiredWorld.net. Donate and uh, thanks again, everybody. Sleep well, Ben. Forty-seven millionaires on a ship with marble squares leaking out their lollipops. No one ever interrupts. Forty-seven millionaires on a ship with marble squares playing. Their teddy bears talking about the rising fairs. Forty-seven millionaires on a ship with marble squares, whistling to the favorite song, dancing, laughing all night long. Forty-seven millionaires on a ship with marble squares, praying to the morning sun, talking with their golden tongue. And I wished. squares there was a wave that killed them all and now the lollipops are gone 47 millionaires on a ship with marble squares traveling to the nowhere land where nasty pleasures never end and i wished i was one of them and i wished i was one of them they tell me how can it be that my set you free tell me how can it be that money can set you tell me how can it be that money can set you free tell me how can it be that money can set you money can set you free I'd love to be a millionaire I wish I had a gold mare and I would waste my precious time by looking